You're listening to Counter Moves, a Christian review of ideas shaping church and culture. On Counter Moves, we interview some of today's most incisive thinkers on the ideas and trends affecting Christian witness in a secular age. Our mission is summed up in the words of Carl F.H. Henry. If the church fails to apply the central truth of Christianity to social problems correctly, someone else will do so incorrectly. Welcome to the latest episode of Counter Moves. On today's episode, we want to discuss the transgender revolution happening around us, a revolution calling into question the most basic aspects of our existence, the question of what it means to be a man or a woman, and for that matter, a human being. There's a clash happening between those who believe humankind is a special creation of God endowed with a fixed nature, as evidenced in our biology and our design, versus an ideology of gender fluidity. The notion that men and women do not exist as fixed, stable identities, but as human beings who can take on a preferred gender, even if that gender is at odds with biological sex. And to have this conversation, we're going to be talking with one of my closest friends, someone I consider a co-conspirator in defense of what is true, good, and beautiful, and someone who is unafraid to enter the fray on some of today's most controversial issues, my friend Ryan T. Anderson. And today we're here to talk with him in particular about his most recent work titled When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. Dr. Ryan T. Anderson is the William E. Simons Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation and the author and editor of Public Discourse, the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute based out of Princeton, New Jersey. He is the author of Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom, and the co-author with Princeton's Robert P. George and Sharif Gurgis of What is Marriage, Man and Woman, a defense. In spring 2017, Oxford University Press released Anderson's book, Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination, co-authored with Sharif Gurgis and John Corvino. Dr. Anderson received his Bachelor of Arts degree from Princeton University and received his doctoral degree in political philosophy from the University of Notre Dame. Ryan, I want to thank you for being on and thanks for taking time out of your schedule to be with us. Oh, sure thing. Happy to be with you. So my first question is just kind of broad and generic. And what brought you to writing on this subject? I mean, you could be writing on on a multitude of issues, but you've focused uh, a part of your career now on the transgender issue. So, So what caused that? Sure. I mean, to a certain extent, this wasn't um, a book that I ever planned to write. This isn't something that I was, um, you know, hoping to one day do when I grow up, I want to write a book about gender identity. Um, This was something that I just felt I had to do um, probably about two years ago. um, We kept getting all these requests at Heritage to do interviews about things that was happening with transgender public policy, with gender identity, with bathrooms, locker rooms, um, sports teams, um, uh, with the, the health care bill under Obamacare, where they had redefined the word sex to mean gender identity. Um, and I didn't want to take many of those interviews because I said, look, before you know, coming out one way or the other, I actually want to do the research mm-hmm. on this. Um, so I was kind of confronted with this um, in the sense that things were moving at the level of law and policy and culture. Yeah. Um, and before weighing in on those things, I actually wanted to take the time to have an informed opinion, do the research for this. So that was probably about two years ago when I said, all right, I'm going to have to um, do a book on this, partly because, I mean, and, and Andrew, you know this well from um, your work on the theological side of this debate. There's so few people doing work on this. Correct. I mean, your book is excellent looking at it from 
a theological lens. I come at this question more from a philosophical and um, science mm-hmm. um, perspective. Uh, I think the views are very complementary. Sure. Um, these things go together because I don't think uh, rightly done uh, faith and reason uh, they can't conflict if if, if they're rightly done. Uh, theology rightly done and philosophy rightly done will not uh, conflict. So anyway, and then the more I started researching on this, the more I saw how much was at stake. Yeah, um, this isn't just about. Uh, bathroom privacy or um, safety. Um, this is really about how we understand the human person. Um, and as a result, if we get the human person wrong, there are huge consequences uh, in the lives of right. people if they buy into the lies of transgender ideology, um, if they try to uh, transform their bodies in accordance with their thoughts and their feelings, rather than trying to conform their thoughts and feelings uh, to the reality of their uh, incarnate body. That's, you know, really what's at stake here. Yeah. I mean, what I hear you saying is that, you know, for, to have a healthy, stable society, you have to have the most basic answers to the most basic questions. And one of those being, what is a man and what is a woman? If we get that question wrong, we put ourselves in a precarious position for trying to figure out other questions to living in society and living in culture. Um, a lot of the debate around the transgender movement is is debates over terminology. There's an ever-expanding lexicon of terms associated with the transgender movement. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time uh, on all of these, but just for two, to make sure that we, every listener is on the same page as, as us as we're talking about this, the, the terms biological sex and gender. Ryan, when we say biological sex versus gender, what do those two terms mean? Sure. So to to understand what's going on here, uh, sex is a bodily reality. Um, Sex is a biological reality. Um, And it's discerned, it's recognized um, based upon a body's organization uh, with respect to reproduction. Um, There's a male way and a female way of being organized with respect uh, to reproduction. Um, And organisms are um, systems of organs that are organized in certain ways. And so this is how we tell the difference between um, different species, uh, different organisms in terms of like canine, bovine, and then uh, um, human. Those are organisms that are organized in different ways. But then so too the way that within a given species, uh, we can determine the male and the female of the species, whether it's the bovine species, the canine species, or homo sapiens, the human Mm -hmm. species, is looking at how that organism is organized with respect to uh, reproduction. Gender, then, is how do we manifest our bodily sex um, in ways that matter, right? And sure. so, so sex is just a given reality. Uh, we're each um, conceived with a sex. We're not born with a sex. We're conceived at conception. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, you know, imprinted in our DNA. It will then influence our development in the womb along either a male or a female organizational trajectory. Uh, We're then born as a male or a female. Then at puberty, we'll go through different sorts of uh, development along a male or female trajectory. That's all biological sex. Mm -hmm. Gender then is how do we present ourselves uh, to the world as a boy or a girl, a man or a woman? And how is that relevant for the various um, goods that we might pursue? Particularly, I, I think friendship and marriage are the two areas in particular where Um, our male and female identity matter most. But then the other uh, point here is how is it not relevant, right? Because a culture can go wrong in one or two ways. Um, It can uh, overemphasize 
uh, sex differences and have rigid sex stereotypes. Um, and it can also under-emphasize or deny that there are indif- uh, differences. So you're going to have androgyny on the one hand, men and women are exactly the same. And on the other hand, you can have very rigid sex stereotypes in which boys have to play with sure. trucks and girls have to play with dolls. Um, what we want to have, um, I think, and what I argue in the book is that the two sexes are equal uh, in dignity, equal in worth, but they're not the same. Sure, sure. And and this this actually gets to um, an observation you've made that I find really really compelling. You've talked about how if if gender is something that is socially constructed, as a, a lot of activists on the left would say, you've also come back and argued. Well, then how can you have an innate sense of gender identity if gender is just socially constructed? Can you unpack your argument there a little bit more for us? Sure. I mean, so so one of the um uh, arguments that I make, I think it's at the end of the third chapter. So the third chapter just looks at, you know, what is it that um, uh, transgender activists claim? You know, let's just hear them speak in their own voice. Uh, and they make various claims about um, sex assigned at birth. And they make claims about our gender identity being an innate sense of gender uh, and that children have this as young as age two or three. Um, and I just point out that there are various contradictions yeah. Um, in this transgender worldview, because on the one hand, they want to say that the real self is something other than the physical body. And so it's a new form of Gnostic dualism or mm-hmm. Cartesian dualism. But at the same time, almost all of them embrace a materialist philosophy uh, in which only physical matter and therefore physical bodies exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a contradiction here. You're saying the real self is something other than the body. I'm trapped in the wrong body. But you're a materialist, so who or what is the I that is trapped in the wrong body? Um, They'll say that gender is purely a social construct, but then they'll say that gender identity is innate and immutable. So how can you have an innate, immutable identity with respect to an ever-evolving, socially constructed identity? How can biology in the womb determine your social construct? So I'm just curious. I mean, is does this lead you in kind of your thinking to be suspicious and skeptical of the legitimacy of of gender identity as a concept? I mean, should we be using it because culture uses it, or I mean, do you think it's so problematic um, that eventually we should stop trying to use it? So, um, I mean, w- what it makes me skeptical of is uh, transgender ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I do think there's some truth to the fact that um, we have um, a sex. We are either male or female. Yeah. Um, that gives rise to uh, gender in the sense of how do we then present ourselves. And then we also have some um, uh, identity with respect to our sex. You do identify as a man, and I do identify as a man. And so I don't think it's totally... Um, uh, kind of an incoherent concept, but I think it only makes sense with respect to our physical incarnation mm-hmm. as a male organism. Where I think the contradiction comes in is when you try to have a gender identity um, detached from mm-hmm. your physical body, because at that point, I think you're just relying on stereotypes. Um, so if Bruce uh, identifies as a woman, it's not surprising when the Vanity Fair cover where it says uh, he's now Caitlin has a very stereotypical image of what a a woman ought to look like. Mm -hmm. Or um, if a young boy 
is more interested in playing with dolls than playing with G.I. Joe, mm-hmm. right? It's not surprising that we're seeing this gender identity is buying into stereotypes of how the two sexes ought to behave. So, I think once we get uh, get away from our actual physical identity, um, gender identity becomes a, uh, a very problematic concept. And, and so a, a lot of activists on, on the transgender side of things will appeal – to um, what we would call brain sex theory. Uh, This is kind of what gives birth to this notion that you can be um, a biological male, but you feel like you're a woman trapped in a man's body in the case, for example, of of someone like Bruce or or Caitlyn Jenner, however you want to name this individual. And so brain sex theory is the prevailing kind of narrative coming from the transgender community. So Ryan, you talk about this in the book. Um, Can you talk about brain sex theory what is it, and then, and why is that theory problematic for transgender activists to kind of base the philosophy of of transgender ideology on? Sure. Um, I mean, a couple of thoughts here. The first is that there is um, very little um, actual scientific evidence to support uh, the brain sex uh, theory. Um, so there, there, there are not um, large, kind of robust um, samples of people who identify as transgender and people who identify as you know, cisgender, to use mm-hmm. another term, um, that show that they're like different structures um, in the brain at a um, population-wide level. Yeah. Um, they, there have been some samples that show that an individual who identifies as transgender um, doesn't, his, his or her brain doesn't look like the average brain for males or females. Um, but that's going to be true of any one of us, right? So most of us um, are not going to be the exact average mm-hmm. type of brain because there's variation uh, between men and women and considerable overlap, right? And so while the average male brain looks different than the average female brain, um, there are men whose brains look more like the average female and women whose brain look more like the average male who both identify with their respective um, sex. Um, so, that, so that's one point is that there's, there's no... Um, uh, uh, good evidence here that it's true. Um, The second point, though, is even if there were, uh, the reality of neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. uh, severely draws into question whether the changes in brain morphology, brain activity, brain chemistry um, is the cause of transgender identification or a result of it. Um, So one of the things that we know is that the brain is constantly uh, rewiring itself and Mm -hmm. reshaping itself based upon our own thoughts and behaviors. Um, So it's not surprising that after um, uh, uh, a decade of identifying and living as the opposite sex, that my brain would look different um, than your brain Mm -hmm. after a decade of living and identifying as your actual sex. Um, So so again, the the studies aren't perspective. Um, uh, They look back in time. And then the last thing to say here is just, um, what does it even mean to say that your brain determines your sex? Right. Um, because again, the concept of sex is based upon uh, the ways in which our bodies are organized with respect to reproduction. And and you and I have, have had conversations, and I remember you saying that if brain sex theory ended up being incontrovertibly accurate and true, all that would say is that you have some men with potentially more feminized brains. That does not change the underlying biological reality of who that man is, correct? 
Exactly. I mean, and so what, what this means is that it, it should help us enlarge our understanding um, of uh, the realities of being a man and being a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, a man who has a brain that's more uh, stereotypically female or that looks more like the average female brain, he's still a man, You're right. but he might have uh, more traditionally feminine interests or characteristics or activity levels, um, comma, or he may not. Right. Like, there's no reason here to think that um, brain morphology or activity therefore determines uh, everything about personality. Um, right. So a lot of people are uh, are making claims about kind of biology as destiny and biological determinism in ways that the data do not really support. Earlier on um, in, in this conversation, you had talked about how good philosophy and good theology done well ought to complement and, and unite one another. And you know, as someone who's a good friend of yours, a, a lot of people will approach me and say, hey, tell me about how, how does Ryan Anderson come at his conclusions? Because they, they know that you're um, a practicing conservative Catholic, but they also know that you rely heavily on philosophy and, and science to arrive at a lot of your conclusions. Um, and, and you would say that you're relying on what you would simply call natural law theory and natural law ethics that is – Sadly, not a highly understood philosophy and approach to ethics and argumentation in kind of Protestant ethics. And so some evangelicals, as a result, approach issues like gender identity and, and the transgender debate through the lens of the Bible. So thus saith the Lord, which is a good perspective to have where we're pro-Bible. Um, but then other people depict natural law as simply saying thus saith creation and reason. Um, but you're saying that natural law and theology and, and, and philosophy and theology done together ought to be um, something that, that are that are complementary together. So can you explain how issues like gender and sexuality aren't the Bible versus natural law, but how the Bible and natural law work together to promote the truth of human nature? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, and, and you've, you, you've done a really nice job setting it up. I mean, one way to think about this is that um, God is not schizophrenic. Right. And so the truths uh, that God has revealed to us uh, through his self-revelation, through scripture and through his son, um, do not contradict the truths that God has communicated us to us uh, through the order of creation and then our uh, rational nature um, you know, we're cr- creatures made in the image and likeness of God. Part mm-hmm. of that means that we're rational and free creatures, um, unlike other parts of creation. Uh, and we have the capacity uh, to discern uh, the order that's in creation. We have the capacity to know truths through reason. Um, now, obviously, as a result of the fall, that capacity has been weakened, right. but it hasn't been destroyed. Uh, and that's why I said at the very beginning of our discussion that uh, philosophy done well and theology done well will not contradict each other. Uh, theology obviously can see further uh, than philosophy. Uh, this is kind of like the Thomistic maxim that grace builds upon nature. Grace perfects nature. Mm-hmm. Um, theology goes beyond philosophy, uh, but it certainly won't contradict it um, if both are, are pursued rigorously and, and carefully and thoughtfully. The other thing I'll add is that um, theology needs philosophy, and vice versa. And, and what I mean by that is, so we, we, we know from the beginning of Genesis that God uh, creates us in his image and likeness and that we're created male and female. Right. Uh, but we then need to ask questions, well, what does male and female mean? 
You know, right. what does it mean to have a male of the species and a female of a species? Is that a bodily reality or is that an identity reality? Um, is is when, God, when when we say God creates us male and female, does that mean he creates us with a male gender identity and a female gender identity? Or does it mean something about um, our bodily nature? And that's something that I think philosophy can help uh, theologians mm-hmm. get a better grasp at. The last thing I'll say about this is also that it, it's um, it's helpful with talking to people who don't share uh, your theological uh, convictions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we need people who who make the theological arguments. We also need people who make the philosophical arguments precisely to help people uh, who don't yet um, accept either set of argument see that there's no tension between them, hmm. that the best of faith and the best of reason highlight the same truths. That's very well said. Thank you. So, Ryan, there are a thousand different questions we could we could mine from your book. One of the ones that I was thinking through and, and where you're probably going to get most of, of your uh, attacks coming at you is, is your recommendations for how to treat someone who would have gender identity disorders or, or um, an expressed gender dysphoria. I'm just curious, if you had a family member struggling with a gender identity conflict and you, and you very may possibly have someone in your family like that, what would you tell them and advise them as far as remedying that apparent conflict? Because this is where the crux of disagreement is so explosive in society. Yeah. So if I had a family or friend struggling with their gender identity, I would want them to see either Dr. Paul McHugh himself or uh, someone um, who has trained under Paul McHugh or someone um, generally uh, who embraces that uh, um, methodology and that general outlook on this. And for listeners who don't know, Dr. McHugh, um, he was an undergraduate at Harvard College. He went to Harvard Medical School. In the 1970s, he became um, the psychiatrist in chief at Johns Hopkins um, Hospital and the chair of the psychiatry department at Johns Hopkins Medical School. And in 1979, um, he shut down uh, the sex reassignment clinic at Hopkins. And it remained shut down up until last year. Uh, And so for the past 40 some years, um, almost 40 years, uh, Hopkins was not doing sex reassignment surgery because McHugh and his colleagues had come to the conclusion that there were patients um, who had uh, struggles with their identity, struggles with their uh, um, uh, psychology and they were trying to treat it by focusing treatment on the body when they should have been focusing treatment on the mind and on the emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the uh, many uh, therapists um, uh, analogize between gender dysphoria and anorexia and other kind of body image uh, struggles mm-hmm. uh, in which we don't direct the therapy at the body. Uh, we direct a therapy at the person and his or her understanding of him or herself um, and whether it has to do with um, uh, body image in the sense of, you know, I don't conform to society standards for what counts as beautiful, or I think I'm overweight when in actuality I'm not overweight, um, or when it comes to uh, gender. You know, I don't conform to society's expectations for what a boy is, and therefore I, I think and I feel that I'm a girl, and vice versa. And what um, he suggests, and what other uh, therapists practice, is a form of talk therapy in which they'll discuss um, with a child, why do you think you're a boy trapped in a girl's body? You know, what are your assumptions about what it means to be a boy or a girl that you think that you're not living up to and that you would live up to if you were the opposite sex? Um, sometimes the therapy takes place in a, a family setting in which they see that 
you know, there might be trauma that's been unaddressed with the parents um, that's influencing a child's uh, gender identity. So I mentioned uh, one case, and it's in the um, clinical literature, you know, one of the case studies from a, a Toronto clinic where a mother had been sexually assaulted uh, and that um, that pain and suffering was never fully addressed. She hadn't received uh, the, the care that she needed. And as a result, she had developed an antipathy towards men and was inadvertently even displaying it towards her son. She had two children, a son and a daughter. She was more physically affectionate with her daughter than with her son. Her son had picked up on this. Um, and so he was actually identifying as a girl, as a coping mechanism to try to um, receive more affection from his mother. And so in the, in the course of family therapy, the therapist was able to identify that the reason the son was identifying as a girl was to try to have a better relationship with his mother. And the uh, therapeutic response here was to help the mother receive the healing that she needed from her uh, sexual assault so she could then be more affectionate with her son and her son would more readily identify as a boy. Uh, and about a year later, uh, the son was identifying as a boy again. And it spared this child um, going on puberty blocking drugs, right. uh, receiving estrogen, um, having surgery of various sorts to try to transform his body into a female body um, simply by doing ordinary uh, talk therapy and helping the mother process uh, her unresolved pain. And we could spend a whole other episode just talking about the problems of suggested therapies and treatments related to the transgender movement. I would like to focus a little bit on what you call the, the contradictions of the transgender movement. You've written about this in the book. Um, you had an, an article about this at Public Discourse. Can you just explain a few of the contradictions that you observe uh, in the transgender movement? Sure. I mean, we, 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 um, we hit on some of this earlier when we were talking about gender identity and how, you know, it, it, it says that there's a real self other than the physical body while also uh, claiming that only physical bodies and material entities exist, right? So the materialism and the Gnostic dualism, they, they don't seem to hang together. Um, uh, how it wants to say that uh, gender is a social construct and yet gender identity is innate and immutable. And how can biology determine your identity with respect to an ever-evolving a social construct. Um, we can go beyond that to say, you know, it, it, it says that people uh, uh, should be free to define reality how they want and to live their lives how they they want. So it embraces this radical, expressive individualism. And then at the same time, it has this ruthless paternalism in which it will punish and coerce anyone yeah. uh, who dissents from uh, this ideology, who wants to, to recognize truth and live their life in accordance um, with physical bodily uh, uh, identity. Um, but it goes further because it, it, it embraces a gender binary in a certain sense while also saying that gender exists along a spectrum. So the gender binary and the idea of being transgender is that you can be, have a man trapped in a woman's body, a woman trapped in a man's body. But then also you can be neither, you can be both, right. you can be somewhere in between. Uh, it can be fluid. So one day you're a man, the next day you're a woman, the third day uh, you're both, the fourth day you're neither. It, it just raises question of how can... Uh, our gender identity be so objective enough that a woman who identifies as a man is a man right. and therefore ought to uh, uh, use male pronouns and use male re restrooms and locker rooms and all the rest. But then also gender is such a fluid concept and uh, exists along a spectrum um, that you can be neither of those options. You can be something else altogether. And, th and then what does that mean in terms of 
the pronouns in the locker rooms, the bathrooms. At the end of the day, it just strikes me that um, we don't know, and uh, there's an epistemological problem here. Mm -hmm. What does it feel like to feel like a woman? Exactly. If you are a man, how would I know? And how would any man know what it is to feel like a woman or to feel like both a man and a woman or to feel like neither a man um, or a woman? Um, that all of this is being based upon uh, sex stereotypes, right? Oh, because I feel like wearing high heels and a dress and painted nails and, um, uh, and all the rest. Therefore, that's what it is to feel like a woman. So we've hit kind of on this next question tangentially, but I want to focus in on it expressly. And, and this is the issue of, of authority and, and how we define what a man is and, and what a woman is. And if someone says their brain or their self-consciousness tells them one thing and their biology says something different, my, my question is why does the body get to be authoritative over one's identity rather than someone's psychology? Oh, sure. But I mean, so uh, think about this. Your psychology can be determinative of your identity in all sorts of manners, right? So if you identify, um, uh, or, or maybe not identify is the, the right word, but if you have an interest in athletics or an interest in music or drama or art or literature, um, then yes, you should pursue those interests, those vocations. You can identify as an artist or as an athlete or as a musician. Um, but the question here is that when it comes to our sex, um, that's not a psychological concept. When it comes to our gender, um, that's a manifestation of our bodily sex, right? So our sex isn't a psychological concept. And then gender, which is a social manifestation, fill in the blank mm -hmm. of our bodily sex. Otherwise, you're just saying gender is a social manifestation of, of what, right? Uh, you're, you're left with an inter when, when gender identity is an internal sense of gender, you're more or less uh, having a circular definition. Uh, it's mm -hmm. an internal sense of nothing at this point, but you've defined a way what it is that gender identity is meant to be expressing. One of the questions or one of the accusations thrown out against conservatives or, or Christians by transgender activists is this is this kind of harm principle type claim that if you fail to affirm someone's gender identity, uh, the lack of affirmation is going to lead to self-harm, to the possibility of suicide. And, and so therefore, in the interest of promoting human flourishing, you ought to affirm that person's gender identity for the sake of their own well-being. And if you don't do this, you're a bigot, you deserve to be silenced, um, and, and polite society has no space for you in the public square. How do you respond to this harm argument uh, that's often, I mean, to me, it's the argument used by progressive activists the most. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, one of the things that we haven't mentioned um, yet uh, in this interview is that th that argument assumes uh, that transition is going to lead uh, people to the wholeness and the flourishing that they desire. Um, but what the, the science on this shows is that 41% of people who identify as transgender will attempt suicide at some point in their lives, um, compared to 4.6% of the general population. Um, and then people who have had sex reassignment surgery are 19 times more likely uh, to die by suicide than the general population. Um, those statistics um, are heartbreaking. The, right. They should immediately um, call into question 
whether or not transitioning, uh, whether it's a social transition or a surgical transition, actually provides uh, the wholeness and the happiness and the flourishing um, that these individuals uh, desire. Um, it's also really important to mention that for children with gender dysphoria, 80 to 95% of them uh, will naturally grow out of it and come to identify with their bodily sex. Um, so especially when we're talking about children, if you know that if you do no medical interventions, you don't do a social transition, you don't do puberty blockers, you don't do opposite sex um, hormones, 80 to 95% of them will just naturally grow out of this if given the time and the space to do so. And if you know that 41% of people who identify as transgender attempt suicide and that people who have had the surgery are 19 times more likely to die by suicide, why would you suggest that the best course of action um, is to give this child a new name, a new wardrobe, a new pronoun, to block this child from going through puberty, um, and then to put this child on um, opposite sex hormones? That, that's where I just see a disconnect um, in terms of people arguing that this will prevent um, self-harm or uh, promote human flourishing. If someone is listening to this episode and, and feeling overwhelmed at how culturally difficult this issue is to engage with friends and neighbors on, what encouragement would you give to them to, to take them off the sidelines and, and into the game for defending and promoting what we believe is true truth about human nature? Sure. So um, there's much too much at stake uh, with transgender ideology um, to kind of ignore it. Uh, and I want to, because we haven't made this distinction yet, so I want to immediately distinguish uh, people who identify as transgender and people who struggle with gender dysphoria from the activists right. who promote right. uh, a transgender ideology, because they're not one and the same. Many right. people who struggle with gender dysphoria, even many people who identify as transgender, aren't activists of any sort, and they don't buy into uh, gender ideology. Many of them know they're not actually the opposite sex. Um, but they think that transitioning is simply the best they could hope for in this life to cope with their gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. uh, but they know that the, you know, the gender unicorn and the gender red person and these various kind of catechetical uh, images that are being used in public schools aren't true. Right. Um, and so I, I want to distinguish uh, between those people, people who are struggling with their gender identity, they deserve our sympathy, our compassion, and they deserve our best effort at reaching them with the truth in love. Uh, which means we have to respond to the activists promoting uh, a transgender ideology, um, both for the sake of people who do struggle with gender dysphoria, but also for the sake of all children. Um, uh, the developmental process, uh, the, uh, going through puberty, is challenging enough in the best of circumstances, mm -hmm. in the healthiest of cultures and of society. It's that much more fraught um, when children are told um, that gender is fluid, uh, that it exists, exists along a spectrum, that they have to decide their gender identity and their gender expression and their uh, sexual attraction and their romantic attraction, that all these things they have to construct. None of them are givens. Everything is plastic. Everything is fluid. It makes it that much harder uh, for children in general, and especially for children with gender dysphoria. Um, and so what, what I have said is, you know, what's at stake here is, is the human person both how we understand who and what the human person is, but also how people will live their own lives. Because if you buy into the lies of uh, uh, this transgender 
ideology, you're much more likely um, to suffer as a result. And that's where the last thing I'll say for this question is the chapter that I wrote on people who had transitioned and detransition mm-hmm. um, was the most difficult chapter to write um, simply because I could only spend so many uh, minutes per day on it uh, without just getting choked up, without like, right. you know, breaking down. Because these, these stories are absolutely heartbreaking, uh, especially stories of people who transitioned um, as teenagers, uh, being told by clinicians and therapists that their only way of avoiding self-harm was to transition, uh, that their truth was that they were born in the wrong body. So they do the transition, um, uh, first hormonal and then later surgical, and then 5, 10, 15 years later, they regret it, and they detransition. Um, and uh, there's only so much detransitioning that is possible mm-hmm. um, after certain surgeries and after so much time on um, the opposite sexes, sex hormones. Um, that's what's at stake here. And that's why we can't uh, be silent. The universal vocation here is to be truth tellers right. Uh, right. and to bear witness to the truth um, in a charitable way and hopefully in a way that will be accessible to people who don't already agree with us. And I, I think what you said is something that should be constantly on our minds is is to be people who speak the truth in love. And I, I love your notion of that being a universal vocation. That's very well said. Um, well, we're going to kind of begin to conclude here, but I always want to conclude by asking some more lighthearted uh, questions for listeners to get to know those we're interviewing. So I have some rapid fire questions. You can spend like three seconds answering them per question. What are your top three desert island movies? Desert Island movies. Um, let's say uh, Shawshank Redemption, Godfather, um, and the original Star Wars trilogy. That's so episodes good. four, five, and six. Good answers. Very good answers. Um, top three Desert Island books. Oh, you know, for that, I think um, I would take the three-volume um, uh, uh, series of books that Jermaine Grisey, who just recently passed mm-hmm. away, wrote titled The Way of the Lord Jesus. Uh, volume one is... Um, 900 some pages on just kind of uh, the Christian moral vision in general. Uh, Volume two um, looks at specific um, topics uh, related to marriage and family, related to truth, related to the economy, related to life. And then chapter three uh, or volume three. um, So each one of these volumes is between 900 and a thousand pages. A volume three is just about um, 300 difficult moral questions Hmm. where he answers each one of these in about three, three to four pages. Um, so those would be my three books. I'd have about a, a three thousand pages. Um, it's it's beautiful <laughs> of lighthearted uh, theology, reading, and like. it's very kind of uh, devotional. It's actually it's really helpful for your uh, prayer life, your spiritual life, to read these. That's great. Uh, what's a recent purchase you've made that has revolutionized an area of your life? Uh, we got a humidifier for our bedroom, and we uh, we sleep much better. We don't wake up with sore throats and dried out noses and eyes. <laughs> not the not the answer I was expecting, but that's a really good answer. I'll <laughs> for sure. Uh, most important Christian book for you, other than the Bible? Um, I'm going to uh, give two. Okay. Um, either uh, Thomas Aquinas's Summa, or actually Thomas Aquinas's Summa and C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Um, Mere Christianity is just such a great book because I can give it to anyone right. who is interested and it's accessible. Uh, the Summa, just because it covers such ground, such great ground with such, um, depth, uh, and insight. Uh, what are your hobbies? Uh, music and, and sports. So, um, uh, in, 
uh, my home here in DC, I was a music major um, in college. And so I have a five octave marimba, four octave vibraphone. I have a real drum set. I have a digital drum set. I have a piano. I have a hammer dulcimer. I have three conga drums. I have a pair of bongo. My neighbors love me. And then uh, uh, in terms of sports, uh, my wife and I, we enjoy mountain biking, kayaking, hiking, um, running to a certain extent, mainly just so I don't get fat. <laughs> and I can testify to the fact that Ryan is a percussionist because he had a whole room before he was married dedicated solely to instruments. And so uh, definitely an ardent percussionist. Any useless talents? Um, well, obviously. <laughs> I write books about gender identity. <laughs> Uh, okay, so where would you go in a time machine if you could? Um, 1920s, uh, Roaring Twenties, um, early jazz era. Okay. If you could meet anyone through history, who would it be? Well, if I could, well, I am, right? I mean, we believe in the kingdom of, of, of God, the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to meet all of these people right. uh, in history. So who do I look forward to meeting? That's right. That's a better <laughs> way to ask this. <laughs> And actually, so I'll say both C.S. Lewis and Thomas Aquinas. Um, I look forward to chatting with them one day. That's neat. Okay, last question. If you won $10 million in the lottery and had 30 seconds to decide what to do with it, what would you do? Uh, since the stock market has been crashing the past two days, I would immediately invest in the stock market, <laughs> buy low, sell high. Um, nothing about my daily life would change. I would just keep you know doing what I've been doing. Um, and then um, once I had more than 30 seconds, I would decide – uh, what charities to start supporting. And, you know, hopefully uh, if the money grows in the stock market, I could actually do some meaningful philanthropy rather than just my uh, tithing. Nice. Nice. Ryan, I want to thank you for taking an hour out of your day for us to interview you about a really, really important book. And if you're listening to this podcast, uh, I recommend that you go out and purchase immediately when Harry became Sally Amazon. It's a, a very uh, cheeky title. If I say so myself, it's an excellent book. I had the opportunity to read an advanced uh, reader's copy uh, before it came out, and I highly recommend it. Um, you should also follow Ryan on Twitter at Ryan T. And. Again, that's at Ryan T. And. And then, again, I just want to emphasize you should buy his book. Um, I think it's hands down the best book on this issue written from a uh, scientific philosophical perspective. Ryan, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for the service uh, that you um, – well, thank you for your vocation that you serve all of us with, with your, um, with your mind, with your intellect, with your writing. And we just want to say thank you for taking time out of your busy day to be with us. Of course. Happy to do it. Well, that concludes the latest episode of Counter Moves. We look forward to being back with you next month.